1: cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue also you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states united healthcare short-term insurance plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage for you learn more at uh1.com sarah and i have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible and skincare is a huge piece of that
0: the formal oath of office they should take. I think a president should basically take an oath to swear never to divide the American people. I think a president Mm -hmm. should wake up every day and have a quiet moment where they ask for strength to make sure they're a unifier. And I think a president uniquely has to be the person to step forward and not act like half of the country is entirely wrong about everything they believe and reminds us that this notion of common purpose is the beating heart of this great nation.
1: This is Sarah from the left and Beth from the right. You're listening to Fancy Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of thoughts.
2: Before we dive in and share our conversation with John Delaney, we wanted to remind everyone that we will be in Portsmouth, New Hampshire this Friday at the South Church in partnership with the River Run Bookstore. We will be having a conversation with Senator Maggie Hassan, and we could not be more excited. So come join us. All the information, including how to get tickets, is on our Facebook page.
1: John Delaney served the people of Maryland as a congressman. He's had two successful businesses in the financial services space, and he was the first person to announce his candidacy for the Democratic Party's nomination for president. And we are so excited that he set in as a third co-host for today's podcast.
2: We are so thrilled to be joined today by Representative John Delaney, who is running for president. He's going to join us for the whole show. We're going to have a third co-host This is the very first time we've had a third co-host running for president, so we're pretty excited. It's great to be here with you. So we'll start the show out as we usually do. We're going to discuss the headlines. We will dive a little bit deeper into Representative Delaney's platforms and positions in the main segment of the show. And we'll close out, as usual,
1: with what's on our mind outside politics. As everyone has probably heard, the Trump administration has changed its position on a lawsuit regarding the Affordable Care Act. You might remember that after the tax law, a bunch of Republican attorneys generals got together and filed a lawsuit saying, look, the individual mandate was upheld as constitutional because it was a tax. It's not a tax anymore because the penalty was eliminated by the Republican tax overhaul. So we should declare this thing unconstitutional. And a judge in Texas said, I think that's right. And I think the individual mandate is so essential to the whole Affordable Care Act. We just don't need to have this law anymore. The entire law should be discarded. So this went to appeal. And the Trump administration originally was only supporting that portion of the opinion that said the individual mandate was unconstitutional. But in a very short letter to the court, it reversed positions and said that it agreed with the entirety of the Texas judge's opinion. And so now we have a situation where it looks like the Trump administration is trying through the courts to do what it couldn't do through the Congress to get rid of the entire ACA. And Mitch McConnell has basically said, peace out. You're on your own, Trump White House.
0: (laughs) I mean, it's just ridiculous that they continue to attack a law that's helped so many people. And that, by the way, the majority of the American people support. I mean, they've tried consistently to overturn the Affordable Care Act. And uh, they've never been able to do it. Why? Because the majority of the American people actually supported things like Medicaid expansion were very successful. And it really helped a lot of people.
2: What I find so intriguing about this approach is beyond the policy, which let's not kid ourselves that Trump is some policy genius, but that it's just a bad political move. I don't think it served them during the midterm. So I'm not I don't understand why he's anxious to Pull it back up for this next election. I mean, you can tell Mitch McConnell is making a political calculus that he, has, he doesn't want to have anything to do with it.
0: Right. Listen, Mitch McConnell saw what happened in the U.S. Senate. Right. Mm-hmm. He saw that really wasn't popular to overturn this law. I mean, a lot of states that have really become dependent upon Medicaid expansion. It's a bad idea to overturn the law politically in those states.
1: John, you were in the House of Representatives while Republicans were trying desperately to fight the Affordable Care Act. I wonder what you think real presidential leadership on health care would look like at this point.
0: So real presidential leadership, I'll tell you what I would do in my first hundred days, I would do things to improve the Affordable Care Act because the law did work. Right, There were really three parts to the law. There was Medicaid expansion, which has worked. There was a lot of protections of the law around things like pre-existing conditions, et cetera, and I think those have really been, been great for people. The part of the law that didn't work was the exchanges, right, because they weren't really set up right. So what I would do in my first 100 days is help stabilize those exchanges, and there's some pretty obvious ways to do it. And then what I would do is lead a conversation with the American people about how we take the next step and actually create a universal healthcare system where every American gets health care as a right. Cause I think it's a basic economic right, and I also think it's really smart economic policy. I think everyone should have it as their human right, and, and you know, if you think about it, you don't want the American people kind of shackled to their jobs because of their health care, and you see that so often today. I mean, wow. I was an entrepreneur before I ran for, for Congress, and I started a business that became very successful. I took it public on the New York Stock Exchange, but I would have never been able to start that business unless my wife, April, had a job with health care because we were thinking mm-hmm. of starting a young family. And, you know, these kind of stories are everywhere. People don't start businesses because of health care. They don't try to get a better job or go back to school and get some skills. So we got to create a form of universal health care, and I have a way to do it that uh, I think makes smart economic sense, is fully paid for, and it involves having, you know, a mix of government and private insurance.
2: I wonder, as you're out campaigning, are the American people sort of following this tit-for-tat back and forth that's going on in Washington, D.C.? Are people just completely frustrated and not following that narrative at all? Are people happy with where healthcare is or are they ready for it to change? I'm wondering as you're taking the temperature what you're hearing.
0: Healthcare is such a big industry as you know, it's the sixth of the U.S. economy and so it really does depend on your perspective. I mean, people who have Medicare are very happy with Medicare. Mm. A lot of people who have commercial insurance are actually very happy with their commercial insurance. Most people know that Medicaid doesn't nearly pay enough, right? And and states continue to do things to put pressure on Medicaid, and that's hurting a lot of low-income Americans. Americans are very, very frustrated with what's going on with pharmaceutical prices because that really Mm -hmm. hits home. And that comes up in every kind of town hall meeting I have, which is one of the reasons I've really taken a leadership role in doing things to get pharmaceutical prices under control. Because what's gone on with, with drug prices in this country and how it affects the average American is terrible. And it's also, you know, what's really unfair is the U.S. citizens really, in many ways, subsidize the whole world's pharmaceutical industries. Because, you know, if you go to Europe, a, a citizen of Germany or Spain or Great Britain, they pay about a third for drugs that we do. And it's really unfair. So we've got to get yeah. ourselves on the level playing with the rest of the world. We've got to get those drug prices down.
1: I wonder how you think about shifting something that creates such a huge component of our economy. Because, on the one hand, we think about how expensive healthcare is because it's part of the private sector. On the other, a lot of people work in healthcare and work in health insurance and work in brokering health insurance for employers. So, when you think about policy that would dramatically shift our system, how do you think about all of the unintended consequences of that policy?
0: It's also one of the reasons, like, some of the early proposals around single-payer health care, I think, were really misguided because they, they said things like, you can't have for-profit health care companies. And I'm like, well, why would we be behind a policy like that? There's a lot of people who work for for-profit health care companies in this country, and why would we as Democrats try to make those companies illegal? That doesn't make any sense. It also doesn't make any sense to get rid of private insurance because if you look at the healthcare market right now, about 80% of health care costs are paid by Medicaid. So if you only took Medicaid and you were a hospital, for example, you'd lose 20%. Medicare only pays about 95% of healthcare costs. So if you just took Medicare, you'd probably lose money, too. And private insurance pays about 115% of health care costs. You know, that's across the whole country. So in reality, the government has never really paid enough. You know, they've never really paid the cost of health care. So I think it's a problem to be in favor of these government only systems because it's not really practical and it won't lead to better healthcare. In fact, it'll probably lead to worse healthcare. So what we really need to do is create a universal system that everyone gets healthcare as a right, but that where they also have options to get private insurance or to get supplementals. That leads to the healthiest healthcare market in my opinion. And it also is not nearly as disruptive because, you know, healthcare is a really big, big system, and it's very complex. And it doesn't make any sense to throw the whole system out the window and start from scratch. And I think it's also really concerning for people, right? Because they're worried about where their health care will come from, or if they work in the healthcare industry, that their jobs will get eliminated. So I think we got to be smart and practical and use common sense when we talk about healthcare.
2: care. Well, let's shift topics a bit and talk about immigration. The situation at the border is becoming untenable. We're having lots of news conference and lots of reports from the border that the numbers of people crossing over are particularly migrants, people with small children are ballooning way past the normal averages. So the president is talking again about shutting down the border. Um, There's talk of sending the military down and some of the military is already down to help. But what is clear is that there is not enough shelters and not enough resources to deal with the huge number of people crossing at the border right now
0: yeah it's a problem you know when i actually saw this firsthand about two months ago i went down to the border and my wife went with me and actually one of my daughters i have four daughters and uh, the reason we went is uh we took 14 law students and two law professors with us and we sponsored them for a week to help asylum seekers make their case and we went to a facility in Dilly, Texas, which is the largest detention facility in the United States of America. We, when we were at Dilly two months ago, there were seventeen hundred women and children in the facility. And so I spent a lot of time sitting to listening to these women and hearing why they were fleeing Central America. And we were, you know, we do have a we do have an issue because there is a lot of migration coming up from Central America. And you know, when you hear these people's stories. You know, you realize that every single person would leave too when you're confronted with, if you were, God forbid, ever confronted with the situation they're confronted with, where you have gangs and law enforcement completely in bed together and they act, you know, they go and they murder members of the family and try to get them to join the gangs. So we really have to do more affirmative things to help stabilize some of these Central American countries and really help them establish civil society at, at some level. And I think there's a role for the U.S. with, with foreign aid, working through our partners and working through other countries to do it, because we're not going to really have a situation where people stop migrating to our border unless we do that.
1: Does that look like military deployment? What would you do specifically to help create a better environment and especially the Northern Triangle?
0: I don't think we want to be in, in the regime change business or sending our military. I think the United States generally most works most effectively in helping countries build civil society through our foreign aid programs, working with non-governmental organizations who are kind of on the ground and assisting. And that's kind of where I think we should largely be. I do think there's a role for the United States to really convene a regional group of interested countries and trying to figure out how we can work together to help establish the rule of law in some of these places.
1: It seems like one of the obstacles to doing that is Americans hear foreign aid and they think dollars. And I'm not sure why Americans don't see the dollars that we're putting into the border right now really ineffectively. But I'm wondering how a President Delaney shifts the national conversation from we're being overrun, we're being invaded, kind of all the language President Trump has used to help Americans understand the wisdom of putting dollars into foreign countries to alleviate some of these issues.
0: I think that a president needs to make the case, which I believe I could do, that foreign aid is in the direct national interest of the United States of America. Really, any way you think about it, because foreign aid, which is less than 1% of our budget, and a lot of people think it's a lot more than that, Foreign aid does two things. Number one, in in many ways, it helps build the foreign or the global middle class, which is actually good both economically because it creates markets for our goods. But it also generally leads to more democratic societies and democracies are much less likely to engage in war and terrorist activities than non-democracies. And, you know, the third thing, it does, you know, stabilize regions and create economic opportunities for young people in these countries. And that really reduces the amount of, you know, terrorism that occurs. It reduces the amount of migration, which destabilizes, you know, countries. And I think it's a particularly important issue right now, because I have a feeling across the next several decades, we are going to face a global migration crisis. But it's going to be very destabilizing unless we actually start doing things, kind of leadership around the world to confront some of these issues. I mean, climate change is going to contribute to it. Technology has contributed to it because it's been, it's displaced so many jobs as this globalization. You know, the ability of people to use social media to kind of incite people has contributed to it. I mean, there's been a lot of kind of destabilizing forces in the world that has led to a migration crisis. And I think if you're really talking to the American people about what's in their best interest, what is in their best interest from an economic and from a national security and homeland security perspective is actually to be involved in engaging in the world and to do what we've largely done successfully in many, many other situations, which is to work with our allies to try to create a world that's more peaceful and secure. And as James Mattis said, when he was getting um, confirmed by the U.S. Senate, he goes, if you cut foreign aid, you better give me more bullets. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's kind of how I think about it. Going towards foreign aid is actually in their best interest from an economic and national security perspective.
1: Before we close out this first section, we want to ask you about the increasing pressure from Republicans for Representative Adam Schiff to step down from his leadership of the House Intel Committee. We've talked in our last two episodes about the Barr letter and the Mueller report and how we think everyone needs to settle down a little bit until we have more information that to me includes the Republicans on this committee. I'm really shocked at where this conversation has gone. Just wondered what your reaction is.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's stupid. You know, I know Adam Schiff really well. And Adam Schiff is a great member of Congress. And he's a patriotic American. And he's very smart and very capable. And I don't think the Republicans have any basis to claim that Adam Schiff should step down from his role as the chair of the Intelligence Committee of the U.S. House of
2: Representatives. It feels like, to me, just something to talk about. It feels like, to me, how to keep this we won, they lost, narrative going. Yeah, I just think that, again,
0: it's surprising we're all even talking about it. You know Uh what I mean? Let's put it that way.
1: I'm especially surprised and disheartened that Representatives Stefanik and Hurd signed off on the letter demanding his resignation. That seems very out of character to me. And I guess I wonder if you can offer us some perspective from your time in the House on what partisan pressure feels like in committees and what role the White House could play in helping reduce some of that partisanship.
0: I think a president, in addition to the, the formal oath of office they should take, I think a president should basically take an oath to swear never to divide the American people. I think a president Mm -hmm. should wake up every day and have a quiet moment where they ask for strength to make sure they're a unifier. And I think a president uniquely has to be the person to step forward and not act like half of the country is entirely wrong about everything they believe and reminds us that this notion of common purpose is the beating heart of this great nation. Mm -hmm. So those are the values and attributes that I think a decent moral leader would provide this country. Obviously, I think the current president has none of those strengths. And, you know, so I think real leadership from the White House, you know, the president in particular should do everything he or she can to try to be above politics, to try to really think about the needs of the country first to try to convey to the American people this notion that, that, that they represent every one of them, whether they voted for them or not. Because we know that Congress is always going to be a terribly partisan institution through the nature of what it is. So presidential leadership to, to dial down the temperature and try to really lead the American, you know, so that they have that currency in a time of crisis, because to some extent, you're going to need every drop of it, God forbid, anything bad ever happens. And so I just think... a a president who actually really truly and deeply loved and cared about their country would commit themselves with everything they have to always try to be unifying.
1: That's a really nice transition to our next regular segment where we try to practice being unifiers and extend compliments to people, not of our party. And Sarah is cheating today and deferring to you, John on this (laughs) segment.
0: So I'll tell you some Republicans that I worked very closely with that were terrific. So one of my favorite members of Congress, whether they're Democrats or Republicans, and the person that I almost think kind of has the qualities that the founding fathers had in terms of the dignity they brought to the to the uh, to their role in leading our country during those critical times, is a gentleman named Tom Cole from Oklahoma,
1: hmm. who
0: is an extraordinarily intelligent and dignified and decent human being who happens to be a fairly conservative Republican from Oklahoma. (laughs) And I worked very closely with him and found him to be, just as I say, a a decent and smart and patriotic person who was always willing to roll up his sleeves and find common ground. So Tom Cole is always at the top of my list. Other members that I worked very closely with are Dave Trott from Michigan, Richard Hanna from New York, who's just terrific. I mean, he's no longer in Congress, but he was just fabulous Francis Rooney from Florida. Francis and I worked very hard in introducing the only bipartisan carbon tax bill in the Congress. Oh, cool. you know, that's right, Democrats and Republicans working together. You know, I was ranked the uh, third most bipartisan Democrat in the House of Representatives. So I really worked very hard to build relationships with Republicans because, in my opinion, if you look back at all the great things this country has done historically, They were always done when good-minded Democrats and Republicans found common ground. That's how you make enduring progress in this country. And we just have to constantly recommit ourselves to that. That doesn't mean we agree with each other on everything. We don't want to live in a country that we agree with each other on everything. But we want our disagreements to be held in a respectful and civil and honest manner. But we also should live in a country where our members of Congress roll up their sleeves and actually find common ground and get some stuff done for people. So those are some of the people I work really well with.
2: I love that. I wish we could have a congressperson on every week to talk about their working relationships across the aisle, because I'm sure you're not the only person that feels that way.
0: The truth of the matter is we're not as terrible as we appear on television.
2: Well, I told, I worked on Capitol Hill, and that's what I always tell people. I'm like, that's just a narrative. No, that's not people. how people really are at all. You
0: know, they're just like any. I mean, some, listen, there's some people on each side that take partisanship way too far. Mm-hmm. And I'm not a huge fan. But I'm not going to name them. But most of them are really patriotic people who are serving for the right reasons. And, you know, just kind of look at the world differently. Right. And that's where our disagreements come from. And it's not right or wrong. You know, that's, that's, that's what's great about our country. You can actually have differences, and express them, and engage in that battle of ideas.
2: What I always tell people is, I'm like, if you're talking about politicians, you're going to have a small percentage of jerks like you do at every job. It doesn't matter what your job is. You do, there's yeah. going to be a percentage of them that are
1: not very nice to be around. It's just like every other
2: human right. endeavor.
1: Well, I want to shine a light on state representative lauren davis in washington state before we move on she is one of these people who i think is working very hard to actually get things done and because of the concern in her state about the affordable care act she's working on codifying as a matter of state law the protection for pre-existing conditions that exist under the affordable care act the essential health benefits that exist under the affordable care act she's also doing some really good work around addiction and what impressed me most about her is that she She introduced a bill called Ricky's Law on involuntary drug treatment and has recognized that it's not working perfectly yet. And so she's working on what they're calling Ricky's Law 2.0 now to improve that legislation. So Lauren Davis in Washington State doing great work, and I am really excited to learn more about her career.
0: Well, that's a great shout out. I'll tell you, there's another person from Washington State who's doing great work, which is Derek Kilmer from the U.S. House of Representatives who is a real bipartisan member of Congress and is actually leading a committee to reform the way Congress operates from a rules perspective
1: so they have an embarrassment of riches it
2: sounds like we are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics but not just when Beth and I are on the road the truth is i want something warm from the oven every saturday morning and sunday morning it's just the truth it makes it feel special makes it feel exciting i don't want to work at it so the first time i ever saw wild grain Terms and conditions apply. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college, y'all. He's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Pantsuit. Before we get into the, if you were president, let's pretend you're president, tell us how you're going to approach things. Let's spend some time on the campaign. What are you thinking about with regards to the qualification criteria for the debates? What made you think about sort of shifting your approach to making it about people in communities instead of just about you?
0: So there's two ways you get on the debate stage. You either get a certain standing in three polls, and we've made it in two so far, so we believe we'll get it in three. And then the other way is to have 65,000 small-dollar donors. And that we're working very hard on because we want to get there, and we think we'll get there. I launched a new program to help us get there, and it it basically says if you give me a dollar, you go to JohnDelaney.com and give me one dollar, then I will give two dollars to one of 11 charities that you choose from in your name. So it's kind of a double bottom line. You help get me on the debate stage, and a small donation to a charity gets made in your name, and you pick it. I love that idea. Yeah, I I always look for a philanthropic angle.
1: Well, I was so impressed because I I went on your website and and made a contribution today to see you on the debate stage. And I was really impressed that you had a a video. Not only, this isn't just a gimmick, right? You also had a video where you spent about eight minutes talking about these charities. And I thought that really demonstrated that you are thinking about this entire endeavor in, in maybe a different way than other candidates.
0: Well, thank you. I appreciate you saying that. And, you know, I am doing this, I believe, for the right reason, I want to make a difference. You know, I've been very fortunate in my life. You know, I grew up in a blue-collar family and first in my family to go to college. And I had this very successful career as an entrepreneur. And now I've had the privilege of serving my country. You know, I always thought of my life as kind of a third learning, a third earning, and a third serving. And I'm in that, you know, squarely in my public service phase of my life. And that's why I want to be the president, because I think I can make a real difference. It's always been about helping people. And, you know, I always think when, The government and the private sector and the nonprofit sector work well together. You get the best outcomes. And my wife and I have always been very philanthropic. And so, when confronted with this challenge of getting these donors, I said, "Well, why don't I create an incentive to get people to give to me?" And and uh, we'll solve. You know, we'll we'll give some money to some good organizations uh, as part of it.
2: Once you're on the debate stage, it's going to be really crowded (laughs) because there are a lot of people running for the Democratic nomination. And I think there's going to be one big question, which is, how are you going to beat Donald Trump? How are you going to go up against this guy that breaks all the rules, violates all the norms when it comes to presidential campaigns? So
0: that's easy. So I'll tell you how I'm going to beat him, and I'll tell you how I'm going to deal with him, because there's kind of two questions. Mm-hmm. right? The first way you've got to deal with him is, best weapon against Trump in many ways is the truth. right? He lies all the time, and you've got to call him out for it. The second thing he does is he likes to throw a punch at you, and you've got to throw one back. You know, and I'm from New Jersey, and I know how to do that. And <laughs> the third thing you've got to do, no, but seriously, you can't, you know, you can't just stand there and take it. You've got to hit him back. But you can't linger, right? You've got to always be turning to the American people and telling them what you're going to do for them to improve their lives, right? Because at some level, it's not about him. It's mm-hmm. about what we're going to do. Which doesn't mean you back down from him, you don't. When he throws a punch, you throw one back. When he lies, you call him out. But you're constantly telling the American people what you're going to do for them and how he's not doing things for them. And right. the way you beat him, to be honest with you, is this election is going to be fought in the center. Mm-hmm. Now, I, believe President, I believe President Trump's going to turn out his voters. I also believe President Trump is going to turn out Democratic voters in record numbers. Whether right. it's me or the 17 or 34 or 68 people I'm running against, you know, I think that we're all going to be the beneficiary of very strong Democratic turnout. So if the Republicans turn out, and the Democrats turn, turn out, then this thing is fought in the center. Right. And so I think the Democrats, we need to put forth a more moderate central storage candidate who can actually build a big tent and be welcoming to progressives, moderates, independents, and even disaffected Republicans. If we put forth that kind of candidate, we're going to win. If we put forth a candidate that's running on solutions, getting things done, focused on the future and and the American people think is decent and civil and respectful, that feels like a really good proposition to us. If we make this election about a whole new business model for the United States of America, I think that starts feeling really risky.
1: Mm -hmm. What kind of reception is that approach getting as you are out talking to voters?
0: You know, I think every head nods when I say it, because I Mm. think people know it to be true. Like, some people don't like it, right? Some people are are pushing the argument this is a turnout election, but I just don't really believe it is. And I think there's a lot of evidence. If you look at the midterm elections, right, these most recent midterms, those give us all the lessons we need to learn, right? In every district in this country, there was record Democratic turnout. Whether we ran a young person or an old person, a white person or a person of color, a socialist or a moderate, it didn't matter what it was, Democrats turned out. And the 40 seats that we flipped in the House of Representatives from Republican to Democratic members, all 40 of those members ran as problem solvers. They, they said things like, hey, I'll work with President Trump if he wants to do something that helps my district.
1: They focused mm-hmm. on
0: health care, they focused on drug prices, they focused on infrastructure. None of them ran on impeachment. None of them ran on eliminating ICE. None of them ran on single payer being the only solution. So the lesson for us in 2020 is right in front of our face in 2018.
2: I said last week that I think he has not internalized how to run as an incumbent. And I think so so much of this message will be different because it's not just, look how different I am, I can burn it down, but he's going to have to run on his record. What do you think— what is your message going to be to voters about the the record over the last three years and what's been what's been really harmful?
0: Well, my message to voters is to really look at the record and don't get caught up in in some of the headlines that he wants to spin. Mm-hmm. Right. So he's going to say the, he's going to say the stock market's done well, and it has done well, and I'm happy it's done well. But in reality, fifty percent of the American people can't afford a five hundred dollar expense. Right. Right. 80 per, 80% of the investment in new businesses in this country last year went to 50 counties in this country. Wow. So think about that. There's, there's 3,100 counties in the country. 1.6% of them got 80% of the, the new business investment. Yet 80% wow. of our kids live in, a, live in a county where the jobs are getting created are not as good. See, and, and then you got to talk about health care. He, he promised no one would lose their health care, yet he's mm-hmm. had a relentless attack on the Affordable Care Act. So I think you, you, you want to run on his record, obviously, because, you know, he said all these jobs would be would be brought back. All you got to do is have an event, you know, just do an event out outside of Lordstown, Ohio, and show him that all those things he said weren't true. So all he's right. going to run on the stock market and the unemployment numbers, which are good. And I'm happy they're good. But we all know there's a deeper story behind those numbers. And the American people also know that we're terribly divided. And, and, and he is and in many ways the divider in chief. And that's not what they want.
1: Right. How much do you think that this election is about policy? I mean, he's not a policy candidate. There are Democrats. I'm thinking specifically of Elizabeth Warren who are cranking out policy proposals every day. And and I'm impressed by that. I think it's great. But I wonder how you run against someone who is is not about policy.
0: Well, you're right about that. You know, the analogy I always draw is with a poker player. There are two types of poker players. There's ones that play the hand and there's ones that play the player. He Mm -hmm. just plays the player. Right, he doesn't care what the hand is, and in many right. ways, policy is the hand, right? And the way you conduct yourself as the player. So, I think this election will be less about kind of economic policy, in some level, which I've got very detailed economic policies on every issue we possibly want to talk about, and I tend to think it's going to be more about kind of decency, you know, morality national unity, right, deep divisions that are in our country that he cultivates, mm-hmm. you know, this loss of the sense of common purpose. I think that's what really resonates with the American people, and it's what really resonates with the center of the country, the independence in the country, right? They, they want a restoration of kind of, you know, behavior by our elected officials where they actually put their country ahead of their party, and the president has proven himself to be an intense partisan who just wants to convince the American people that their enemy is their fellow American. You know, if they have a different color skin or they pray to a different God, they're somehow someone you should be worried about. And, and I just think, you know, the American people are looking for something fundamentally better than that. And so you got to be good on policy. you got to have ideas. you got to show how you're going to solve problems. But you got to tie that in to the way you conduct yourself, right? Because I think the American people know that We need someone who actually wants to work together and get things done and solve problems. Then not only feel better about that, there'll be a lot less drama, but we'll also get a lot of things done. So I I think in many ways it becomes about that. You know, we should not put up a divisive figure because then it takes away our greatest kind of asset against him in many ways.
2: So let's say that message connects with the American people. And you are now the president, you've been elected, and you're transitioning. What is important to you as you begin assembling your cabinet?
0: Well, I want them to represent the American people, right? So I want, you know, all Americans to feel like they're represented in my cabinet. You know, so that's the first thing. And the second thing, I want them to be really qualified for the job. And the jobs are different. Some of the jobs in the cabinet really argue for a member of Congress. Because a lot of what you're doing is dealing with Capitol Hill and trying to get things done. Other mm-hmm. jobs in, in the cabinet require very specific expertise, like the Department of Energy. You know, you, you, it's ideally you want someone who's a great scientist.
1: Right.
0: Um, so I think right. all the cabinet positions are a little bit different depending upon which job it is.
1: Thinking about... Finding a really great scientist, for example, leads me to ask you about transparency in government. Obviously, Donald Trump has run on this drain the swamp idea and then perpetuated the swampiest of swampness in the way he's filled positions. I'm wondering what you think we should expect in terms of transparency from the White House. And how would you restore some trust with the American people after I think, and I'm a lifelong Republican, a, a pretty corrupt couple of years.
0: Yeah, I mean, look, you, you can't have cabinet secretaries who engage in self-dealing. You can't have mm-hmm. cabinet secretaries that have major ties to industries that they're going to regulate. So you, you shouldn't. Well, it turns out nepotism-
2: you can, you just shouldn't.
0: <laughs> right, you shouldn't. Right, you, you shouldn't engage in nepotism, which is a form of corruption. Mm-hmm. Right, You should hire the best and the brightest. And there should be complete transparency around whatever dealings they have, et cetera. You know, and you should really be able to represent the American people that you've got the best people for the jobs, not the best connected or your best friends.
1: Right.
2: Or your family members. We completely agree. Well, so let's say you've assembled this cabinet and you have your first sort of honeymoon period. What's going to be your... Number one priority. Let's say you have actually I have a two part question to this. What is your number one priority? Is it gonna change if you have a divided government? Like would would your priority if you had a Democratic House and a Democratic Senate be different if you had a Republican Senate and a Republican House or some division of the two?
0: Yeah, no, I think your I think your strategy for making things happen changes a little bit on the margin. But I don't think the priorities change. So let me tell you how I think about my first 100 days, because that's really, in many ways, the most important thing to talk about, because I think Mm -hmm. that that's the whole tone for the administration. So what I want to do in my first 100 days is I want to announce that I have an agenda. And it's going to be about five or six items in 100 days. So this is my entire agenda for my administration. This is what I'm talking about in that first three months. And every one of those ideas or policy proposals that I want to get through as president in my first three months is going to be based word for word on an existing bipartisan bill in the Congress of the United States.
2: Oh, We're good-minded
0: Democrats and Republicans have found common ground. Because I want to look out the American people, and as, and as I said, I represent every one of you, whether you voted for me or not, I'm going to prove it to you. I'm going to actually advance and put all my administration's muscle behind things that we actually agree with each other on so that we can get them done, because you deserve that. And then I'm going to call for national service. I'm going to roll out an exciting new program, not mandatory, but a really exciting incentive-based program to, to create an opportunity for every high school grad to serve our country in some way. Those are going to be my priorities in my first 100 days, and I think it'll change the whole tone of my administration.
1: I really love that. I also know that very few presidents get to be the kinds of presidents that they envisioned being when they were campaigning, because so much of the job is responding to crisis. So I wonder if you can tell us, what are your guiding lights as you think about the true emergencies that, that you might face while in office?
0: The first thing is to always be honest with the American people, right? I think the American people can handle the truth and they deserve the truth. And whether it's good or bad, you know, you've got to be honest about the situation because that's the only way you can be honest about how you're going to address it. So that, that's the first thing. The second thing is in my whole career, I've always been very good at, at kind of getting quote people around the table who have real expertise and talking things through and really listening to different points of view, including when I kind of make a decision, making sure someone really smart around the table is charged with arguing with me why that's not the right thing to do, because I really want to see both sides and really uh, get an appreciation for you know, this consequential decision I have to make. The third thing I got to do is I want to get the American people involved in it, and I want to get, you know, get their support behind what I'm doing, because if you have, you know, public sentiment on your side, it's a lot easier to deal with situations. And then the last thing, depending upon the situation, and obviously the most serious decision a president has to make, is whether to send, you know, young men and women into harm's way. And that, you know, that comes with the job of being commander-in-chief. And I take that responsibility incredibly seriously. And it's funny, I have said to someone who asked me this question, they said, well, how would you make the decision to deploy our troops? I said, well, you know, I would sit with my experts and we would talk about it and I'd get the best advice I can. And then I'd go over to Arlington Cemetery and I'd walk around that cemetery and I'd make sure I really felt comfortable that I may have to call a mom or a dad or a husband or a wife and tell them that their loved one was lost, you know, because of a decision I made. And I would have to really feel comfortable with that. So that's kind of how I think about making some of these really big decisions.
1: Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us
2: Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15.
1: There's not much worse than a dry, energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered showerhead comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered showerhead. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water You talked about getting public sentiment on your side. I wonder if you faced some of the challenges with Congress that President Obama faced. I'm thinking about Mitch McConnell declaring, you know, this is going to be a one term presidency. Do you think that that public sentiment would be enough to move Congress to work with you? And if not, how would you approach what some of our listeners would refer to as just persistent Republican intransigence?
0: you got to take the case to the American people. I think there's a difference between Republicans around the country and the Republicans in Congress. Because I think gerrymandering and money in politics has created a Congress that just doesn't work and is much more obstructionist than a lot of the American people are. So you just got to take your case to the American people. You have no other choice. right? If you're confronted with a Mitch McConnell, who I think was unpatriotic in terms of how he dealt with the president, You know, I just think you have to be taking the case to the American people, right? Because he's going to try to obstruct you, and it's just wrong.
2: Do you think that case is easier to make as a former congressman? Like, the perspective the American people need to hear of, like, I've been there. I know how this can work. It doesn't have to be like this.
0: Right. I do think so, right? And I also think that there's things I would do strategically to kind of make a difference. I mean, one of the things I would do is I would have a member of Congress over for breakfast every morning in the White House. And I, you know, I, I pushed... President Obama's chief of staff to do this. I just think it makes a difference, right? If you are the president of the United States and you want to get anything done in this country on domestic policy, then your client is the Congress, right? You've got to get Congress on board. And there's no better use of your time than talking to members and really working them, kind of the way like LBJ did, you know, just relentlessly working members of Congress and really trying to get them to use... When there's close votes, one or two members make a difference, and you may be able to build up the kind of personal currency with some of these people to move them to your side. Like, for example, on climate change, I want to pass a carbon tax bill in my first year as president, and I, and I know how I'm going to do it. I'm going to get every Democrat on, on board, and then I'm going to get the Republicans in coastal states to get on board. Mm-hmm. Republicans in the middle of the country may not want to deal with this, but I can, I'm sure that Marco Rubio and Rick Scott want to deal with it, because they have to. So I think you got to think about coalitions. you got to think about who's going to be your supporters and what you can do for them to get them on board.
1: We asked our listeners what they wanted to hear from presidential candidates. And one of the most fun questions that came up that people think would be illuminating about how you think about the world is, what's the best book you've read in the last year and a book that you're excited to read?
0: One of the best books I read in the last year was Thank You for Being Late by Thomas Friedman. I uh, gave it out to all the uh, folks at the New Hampshire J.J. dinner last year. I just finished a terrific book called Storm Lake, written by a fabulous editorial writer named Art Cullen, who won the Pulitzer Prize last year in Iowa. He lives in a little town, Storm Lake, Iowa, which his family's been from forever. He and his brother run the Storm Lake Times, which is a one-room newspaper operation that does a great job covering their community. And Art Cullen wrote a bunch of op-eds uncovering kind of a, a corruption with the ag industry in his small town and environmental protections, and he won the Pulitzer Prize for it. It was the smallest newspaper to ever get a Pulitzer Prize. And he wrote a book called Storm Lake, which is basically the story of this town over several generations. And uh, it tells you everything you need to know about what's happened to rural America in this country.
1: That's really neat.
2: We're going to move on to the last segment of our show when we discuss what's on our mind outside politics. So we thought we would check in with you on March Madness. Are you an NCAA fan?
0: I am, but, you know, but my team Maryland lost.
2: I know. they got beat. I have, When I saw that, I have to tell you, um, I was on a three-day hike through the woods, and I was hiking with an LSU fan who was literally hiking through the woods while holding his phone and watching that game. <laughs> right.
0: So that was kind of disappointing. So I've lost a little bit of interest in the tournament since then. So who's your team?
2: Well, we are both from Kentucky, and Beth is an even bigger Kentucky fan than me. I, I'm, I'm an adjacent basketball fan, but she's the real deal.
0: I thought you, I, I thought your accent might have been North Carolina, so I thought you were going to be a Duke person.
1: I lived in North Carolina for a while, but you are not allowed to be a Duke person here in Kentucky. That is like a mortal sin.
0: Yeah, but but I but I, I didn't I didn't know you were from Kentucky. Right <laughs> there was a there was a whiff of North Carolina in that in that voice. So.
2: My husband is a went to Duke Law and. Like any, I have to like, be very careful about when I wear my Duke Law sweatshirt because it just says Duke on it. And one day right. I wore it during a Duke UK game and I didn't realize it. And I got dirty looks all day. And at the end of the day, I was like, oh my God, that's why people were being so nasty. Like I had no idea what was going on all day long.
1: Right. Listen, we right. have a browser tab for diddukelose.com in our house. Like, <laughs> this is very important. Yeah. So, so, John, who do you think will win it all?
0: You know, so again, I, I mean, I think Duke's a favorite, right? So I, I, Gonzaga is also, I think,
2: uh, pretty well. Well, Gonzaga's think, not right? Duke, so I hope they win.
0: <laughs> Agreed. We'll yes. so go with Gonzaga. I don't have any strong allegiance. I mean, I am I like Maryland and Georgetown. You're an alumni of Georgetown, right? Yeah, I went to the law school there. I went well, to the undergraduate, but they're not really relevant to this.
2: I have to tell you, I saw that your wife works for... For Common Sense Media, as the Washington director. I check that website yep. as the mother of three young children approximately two to three times a week, if not more. What a resource. Isn't it, isn't so please. It the
0: best? Yeah, it's
2: the absolute best. I mean, there's just so many times. Look, if you have small kids, you don't have time to pre screen things. Okay. Like, no. that's not a thing i have time to do in my life and so the idea that there's this amazing resource that will tell you okay here's what's in it this is what you might be concerned if you're concerned with sex or if you're concerned with violence or if you're concerned with cursing like this is what they rank oh gosh i cannot say enough good things no, about it's, that
0: it's fabulous and i'm so proud of the work she's done she's one of the leading experts in the country in the in the in the field she was there with common sense from the beginning she's pretty much better than me at everything
2: Oh, um, did that come about yeah. from your from your four daughters? Is your house like little women? I'm so jealous. I have three boys. I want a daughter so badly.
0: Yeah, you know, it, I, I mean, I feel so blessed with my four amazing daughters. My, my oldest just got engaged, actually. She's getting married. Oh, okay. congrats. Yes.
2: So did it, and, did your yeah. wife get involved with Common Sense because of, like, just ha- having a bunch of younger children? Or was it her legal background? No, no,
0: because it, 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 it her legal background. She was a communications attorney and always had a strong interest in communications law and public policy. And she met the person who originally founded Common Sense, literally right when it was getting started. So she was there on the beginning. She's kind of run the Washington office ever since it started, really spearheaded a lot of important policy initiatives. And, um, you know, she's one of the real experts in the country. You should have her on your show.
2: (laughs) I really would, because I mean, I just don't think people take media as seriously as they should with children. It's really funny. Like, when she first got involved, I got to say, I didn't really get
0: it. Right. You know, she said what they were doing and I said, oh, that sounds good. But I didn't really completely understand. And she just saw where this was all going, particularly with technology companies way before I did. It's really deeply important work. So she and I are really partners in uh, in things. And uh, yeah, I just feel very lucky to be married to her.
2: Can I just say how much I, what a treat it is to have this conversation come alive when you're talking about your wife and not when you're talking
1: about March Madness? So what a, what a perfect way to end the show. Uh,
0: Yeah. So I appreciate that. I appreciate
1: that. Well, John, I know this is a huge block of time for somebody running for president to spend with one outlet. And we are so glad that you came on. Tell people how they can get involved in your campaign. What's the best thing they can do for you right now?
0: Best thing they can do is go to JohnDelaney.com and give me a dollar. That's actually (laughs) the best thing someone can do for me. Feel free to give more than a dollar if they want. But a dollar would really help because it helps me get to $65,000. we are always looking for volunteers. I really love being on your show. You know, I we've been in the car from Manchester to Logan Airport. I'm getting on a plane and flying to Iowa. So it was the perfect way for me to spend this time in the car. So I really enjoyed talking to you. You two are terrific and smart and fun, and it was great.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you so much. We wish you all the best. We'd love to check back in with you as things keep going, and we'll be watching.
0: Thanks very much.
1: We want to thank John Delaney again for joining us. We had
2: such a great conversation. Also, before we wrap the show, we wanted to let you know that we will be in New England this Friday, and next Friday, we're going to be in Florida with the Florida Gulf Coast University. They're having a pasta and politics dinner, and you can purchase a VIP ticket with the promo code PantsuitVIP for $10 off. It's $55, and it includes admission to the pasta and politics event. Dinner, a copy of our book, and a meet and greet with us. So check it out at pasta and politics, F-G-C-U. Again, that's pasta and politics,
1: all spelled out, FGCU.eventbrite.com. Also on Friday, we are going to be talking about one Joseph Biden and the rough start to his maybe campaign. Let's- Sarah needed some time time to calm down. Yeah, I need some I need some
2: time to get a little calmer about it because I'm going to get real riled when we talk about it.
1: I think there is a really important conversation to be had about this that has nothing to do with Joe Biden, and I'm excited about that, too. So tune in here for extensive Me Too adjacent discussion on Friday between now and then. Keep it nuanced, y'all. Life giving way. Tracy Putoff, Tim Miller, Cherry Haas, Sarah's husband, Nicholas Holland, and my husband, Chad Silvers. Our theme music is composed and performed by Dante Lima. The music under our ads is composed and performed by Dylan Garvin. Learn more about our lives, live events that we're involved in, and what we're reading each week by signing up
2: for our weekly newsletter at PantsuitPoliticsShow.com.
1: And connect with members of the Pantsuit Politics community by following us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.